Hell yeah. Hello everyone, this is Josiah Edo with you with the ReXX series. Today's special guest is General Robert Spaulding. A little bit about General Spaulding. General Spaulding has served in senior positions of strategy and diplomacy within the Defense and State Department for more than 26 years, retiring as a Brigadier General. He was the Chief Architect for the Trump Administration's widely praised National Security Strategy and the Senior Director for Strategy to the President at the National Security Council. How are you? Very good. Oh my goodness, this is uh, a dream come true. Um, thank you for <laughs> spending uh, your Sunday with us for a short minute. Um, Absolutely. Looking us. forward to the conversation. Absolutely Lord, awesome. Um, so I just um, so we're going to do this very informally, um, just so that there's no anxiety. I know that you know me and uh, Tyler here are, are ground pounders. I was a corporal got out with the uh, Second Battalion, Eighth Marines. We both served in the same unit. Um, we're both multi-tort vets, and uh, right now our project really encompasses uh, mental health. And I'm not too sure if you received the small comment that I, uh, whenever I sent in the request to speak with you, but we're mainly addressing narrative and mimetic warfare through the lens of a 4G environment and how that's proliferated through the use of digital technologies from Russia's standpoint of view, and then now China's point of view in terms of their their kind of uh, ideology in terms of Sun Tzu's, you know, war is deceit. Yeah. So, um, all right. I'm going to, Paul, you mind go ahead and start? Yeah, we're recording. All right, perfect. So just a, just a little bit about uh, who we are, sir, in terms of the overall project. So right now I'm currently writing a book It's called O3XX, The Hidden Language of Brotherhood and Intuition. And a large part of it focuses on mental health reform and how warfare has changed in the past 20 years. I think David Kilcullen does a great job in terms of identifying how some of these proxies, non-state actors and state sponsorship of these proxies have kind of just essentially adapted to uh, our, our, our uh, platform in terms of uh, DOD. And the book really uh, takes into consideration that our mental health institutions, whether it's in the military perspective but the civilian sector hasn't been able to adjust properly to these domains 
And so what we're trying to do in the long term, and we're in the early stages of it, is we're trying to approach the Department of Defense in terms of creating a new MOS, one that's a warfighter, but also a mental health uh, professional that's also um, very uh, endowed with the skill sets of understanding influence operations. And part of that goes into one of the claims that I make, and that is a national security concern for us is social epigenetic and mimetic entropy. Essentially, atmospheres are being generated through digital technologies. And what's happening is artificial traumas are being created, hence the sowing of division throughout the United States. And so right now, in terms of like the practical applications, working with the, uh, the local university, and we're trying to establish how mental health is being affected by influence operations worldwide, not just through um, you know, the Russian perspective or Chinese perspective, but just in general and how it's creating divisions within some of these college campuses. And what we're trying to do is create a template for a lot of other colleges as well to address some of these narratives that proliferated. And the Global Index Disinformation uh, Index pinpointed in 2020 or at the end of 2020 that 519 sites were discovered to essentially promote white supremacy narratives and anti-Latinx narratives. And when you take that into consideration with uh, what Park Advisors did with State Department in their, uh, their uh, paper called uh, Weapons of Mass Distraction, they found that on average, a disinformation piece reaches 1,500 people. And it only takes 7,200 kinds of interactions to kind of change political leaders uh, uh, influence in terms of policy. And so whenever you're able to manipulate, you know, the information ecosystem the way you want it to, it's going to be very difficult to address whole of government, whole of society issues. And one of those being how China has essentially come into the fold with uh, everything that your book discusses. And uh, so for us, you know, we're seeing the effects of disinformation hit our unit specifically amongst other units. And so we've had a dramatic increase in suicides. So for us, addressing the nature of war and how it is today. So in 2018, the national defense strategy kind of took United States out of strategic atrophy. And we really began to address great power competition in the way it needed to be addressed. Now we're still in the early phases of that and kind of taking a, a public education stance where I go around to specific communities, I consult to specific individuals about how these things have changed and how we should be perceiving mental health and the overall framework. And uh, your book and your research and what you're doing essentially covers it all. And so for us, for example, in January, whenever the, the insurrection took place, there was a large degree to which veterans were predominant in that force. And that's dangerous to our community. It's dangerous to the operational community. And part of that is, you know, when you look at disinformation or conspiratorial or fringe insurgencies, a lot of it really taps into the meaning, right? So they want to be part of something larger and bigger. And so if you're able to manipulate that, then you're more susceptible to partaking in these kinds of actions. Um, and I, I just want to apologize, sir. Um, I have some background noise, uh, had some serious winds, and uh, my door's literally hanging and, and they're fixing it. I do apologize for that. It's all right. 
and I was, I, you know, I was wondering, sir, if it's okay with you, if I could read a portion out of your book to go ahead and kind of begin the, this, this conversation. Sure. Sure. Awesome. And this is kind of really what I was hoping we could tap into, if it's okay with you, sir, just kind of demystifying the nature of 5G and just how China has been uh, essentially uh, a, a predominant force in, in, in subverting a lot of uh, U.S. influence. Um, and this is a portion out of page 114. It says, if a Chinese telecom builds and controls the nation's 5G network, there will be no checks and balances to keep the Chinese company from stealing and mining all the data on that network. All the academic papers and research, all the engineering and business plans, all the photos, emails, and text messages, everything will be fair game to a country that doesn't believe in fair games. Furthermore, controlling another nation's network will allow the CCP to weaponize the technology that is managed by the network. What does that mean? Think of a hostile force over a self-driving car or a bus directing it to crash into a crowded sidewalk. Think of a flock of drones moving into the flight path of an airplane. Think of every digitally controlled furnace shutting down during a sub-zero cold spell. And with that said, sir, um, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's open to you now. So, you know, I think there's, um, you know, a lot of uh, concern. Uh, if you see what just happened in Texas, for example, uh, when they had the grid go down because it was overwhelmed because they had a cold shock. So we have a very fragile critical infrastructure. Um, and uh, for example, you know, it used to be that engineers on the electrical grid were taught to balance the load. So if you had to, if the grid went down, then they would go out and they would use walkie talkies and basically uh, manually balance the load. So they, that all that's done using software. It's all done on a cellular network. So if the grid goes down, the network goes down, if the network goes down, then um, you have a hard time bringing the grid back up. So there's a lot of vulnerabilities built into the way that we've um, allowed uh, kind of the proliferation of what's really a consumer grade technology to be embedded in all of our um, critical infrastructure. So we're, we're vulnerable. Um, not only vulnerable in terms of, you know, our critical infrastructure, but our society has been made vulnerable by the change in our economy. So, you know, if you go back to, and I say this a lot, back to 2007 when the iPhone came out, we had an industrial economy. The companies that were in the top five were AT&T, General Electric, Microsoft, ExxonMobil, and Shell. 10 years later, it was Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, Microsoft uh, as well. What they made their money on was essentially taking the data that came out of, a, um, came out of devices like the iPhone and Android phones and really used it to sell the ability to influence uh, the people that had those devices. So it's really about cons influencing consumer behavior patterns. So Silicon Valley using machine learning and AI has basically um, been able to take the data and monetize it. And now they represent 25% of the S&P 500. So very powerful, uh, uh, very large, powerful um, tech companies, predominantly American tech companies. Now, um, you know, all of that 
all of that data today is primarily you know dominated by those companies so apple's a huge data company um, google's a huge data company amazon's a huge data company well there's also chinese equivalents baidu alibaba tencent baidu is like google alibaba is like amazon and tencent is kind of like facebook well, one of the challenges that the Chinese had were the fact that, you know, Android and Apple are American products. And so Huawei, for example, which is the biggest telecommunications equipment provider in the world, I think they made $187 billion last year. They could not supplant uh, Google and, and Apple uh, in, the, in the mobile phone market. They had to use Android. They didn't have their own operating system. And they couldn't. And in fact, when they were put on the entity list uh, and they can no longer use Android, you've seen a huge drastic um, decline in the use of Huawei smartphones globally as a result. At the same time, you know, there's been this huge um, push by the U.S. to push Huawei out of um, nations around, you know, allies and partners. And there's a big rip and replace um, program going on here in the United States. So there's a counteroffensive going on both diplomatically uh, and also in terms of, you know, the NT list and using other um, avenues to prevent transfer of technology to China. But nevertheless, that technology that 5G is built on, the standards, the underlying patents, most of that, as opposed to 4G, is dominated by Chinese companies. So the standards and the technology that Ericsson, Nokia, Samsung, others are building on in terms of 5G. It's primarily technology that was developed by China because they invested in it. So you saw this uh, dominance of the American tech companies and, and the fact that American tech companies sell the ability to influence your consumer behavior appealed to China because it really is for them about political warfare more than anything else. And so they wanted that ability to influence, but they, uh, they, didn't, they couldn't break into the market. They couldn't supplant Apple and Google. And so 5G really gives them that opportunity because it's a change in the way that we interact uh, with, um, with computing. Today, we interact on smartphones. 5G is not about smartphones. It's about interacting with the city. It's about the city being able to track you. So today, for instance, in Beijing, there's two cameras for every person in the city. It's all powered by facial recognition, gate recognition, all kinds of um, machine learning uh, technologies that enables the government to track your, your movements around the city. When you pair that with things like Mobike, which is a bike in Beijing and, and also in Washington, D.C., that you, you know, scan with your phone a QR code, you unlock the, unlock the bike, ride it somewhere, and then lock it, and then they you pay for that. That company knows you know what you've been doing. So, uh, and then when you add in all your transactions, whether you're you know buying a meal or you know um, buying an airplane ticket or you know uh, downloading music, all of those are tracked uh, because all the apps within China are tracked. So. And then because you can start to begin to take that fact, facial recognition and gate rec recognition and then use that um, with um, point of sale, point of sale transactions, then you can begin to really 
transform the way that you interact. So today, in fact, in 2017, when I was in Beijing, you could order food on your phone, put your phone away, walk into the restaurant, a camera would do facial recognition, and your transaction would happen that way. You wouldn't touch your phone again. So 5G is really about uh, moving away from the phone. So rather than you know, op taking your phone, opening up an Uber app, you basically, um, you say, I want an Uber. A camera recognizing you, a camera that's outside your door recognizes your face, recognizes you asked for an Uber, uh, all using machine learning and AI, and, and then the car gets sent to you. Now, the reason um, this, uh, this infrastructure that's being built is, is designed this way is so that the Chinese Communist Party can not only uh, affect your consumer uh, behavior patterns, because for instance, Alibaba is a, big, um, is a big sales company, just like Amazon. So they made $38 billion in one day in China uh, in, in uh, Singles Day last year on its 11-11, it's uh, November 11th. But there is a good report uh, from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute that talks about uh, another company in China that's kind of like Alibaba. It's a data company. It's, the name of the company is Global Tone Communication Corporation. What, what GTCom does is do language translation using machine learning. They do it in 65 languages. So for instance, uh, they run for uh, video teleconferences like this, and then they take the language uh, you know, that's spoken and they translate it to different languages. And that, um, that uh, company collects two to three petabytes of data per year. So if you think about you know, Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, GTCom, these companies are collecting data and they're using it for you know, singles day or translating languages, that's one thing. But what um, the uh, report out of, the, uh, of ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute shows is that those companies don't just take that data and leave it for their business. It goes to the United Front Work Department and it goes to the People's Liberation Army and Intelligence Arm. So it basically goes to the propaganda and intelligence arms of the Chinese Communist Party. And so this data is used not just to influence your consumer behavior, you know, get you to buy more shoes or toothpaste, but also your social and political behavior. Now we know that Facebook already does that. It, it, it basically has been used um, both by right-wing and left-wing groups to influence political and social um, perceptions. Now, the Chinese Communist Party, as I said, is entirely about political warfare. So not only do they enjoy things that, that um, create divisiveness, whether it's on the left or that it's on the right, they actually encourage and perpetuate that. And, you know, as you, as you know, the way the, the way that social media is used today is it's basically used in concert with other influencers. So for example, um, if Huawei used social media in Europe to encourage European uh, politicians to not go against Huawei. And the way they did that is to get influential people within think tanks within Europe to write articles that then the Huawei executives and others themselves began to retweet and repost on social media. So then this gets picked up by their followers who 
in turn, many of them are bots to then repump that message. So social media combined with uh, you know, influencers is really used to, uh, to move per perceptions to influence social and political and economic behavior. And so, you know, my book really, you know, I began to understand that, you know, me as a B2 pilot, I can put, you know, I can drop bombs, but that's far less effective than this ability to influence people at the individual level. And quite frankly, you know, you know, our adversaries are um, using social media companies here in the United States. They're not, so, so China's just not using, you know, things that they've built. They're using Facebook. They're using, um, you know, Twitter. They're using it both directly, like their, their, um, their diplomats are using it, but also they're paying companies. So in the United States, there's PR companies, there's, um, there's uh, social media influencing companies that actually get paid to influence, you know, people's perceptions. The Chinese have complete access to these tools, so they can they can hire a company to um, to do perception management for them. They so it's not just that um, the Chinese have access or the Russians have access because they have access to our economy. They have access to you know Americans, so Americans that are very good at social media influencing. In fact, uh, they influence the influencers that then gets rebroadcast. We saw this, for example, with LeBron James. Le what, what did LeBron James come out? Well, don't, let's don't say anything about Hong Kong because we don't know, uh, you know what we're talking about. You know, why did he say that? He was making a lot of money in China, you know, selling his apparel, you know, his branded apparel, and he knew that that would be impacted, so he wouldn't speak out. And that message then got retweeted by Chinese uh, bots. It got retweeted by you know, other uh, Chinese, um, you know, influencers. And so the idea here is not that it's just, it's just China or Russia, it's also us. And we've created, it's like, um, it's like we created, you know, the Silicon Valley created this very powerful weapon at, and I think you're, you're, you're really, uh, I think you're really onto something because the, the weapon's aimed at minds. It's aimed at perceptions. It's aimed at, you know, influencing the way that you uh, behave and think. And it is um, because we built it open without any protections, it's open to the highest bidder to begin to influence you in ways that you, are counter to your own interests. Now, for example, in a, in a governance perspective, like when we think about the Constitution and we think about, you know, how do we protect the population from oppressive government if the Constitution fails, this is the purpose of the Second Amendment. But if you're in a world where you don't know who's oppressing you, or you may not even know that you're being oppressed, then you have to wonder, well, what's the purpose of a gun? You, it may be that you've been influenced to shoot your neighbor because you think your neighbor is oppressing you, when in reality, somebody did that on purpose in order to create that problem. So we've this world we've created has surpassed um, the ability to really think in terms of the constitution, which was really ma made for a world that didn't have the global internet, didn't have globalization, didn't have these technologies, didn't enable us to leverage data in the way that we can. And so that's, that's for me, um, the, it's, it's far more powerful than just shutting off the grid. If you can get 
the population to voluntarily, and if you, if you look at 2020, that's what happened. We voluntarily gave up our freedom and we gave up our freedom to a, a global medical establishment that has under the complete control of the Chinese Communist Party, the World Health Organization, the CDC, all of these lockdown policies, all of these things that came out of, um, out of the coronavirus were, if you go back and you say, okay, let's, I'm gonna look at what China's policies are and I'm, I'm gonna look at what Taiwan's policies uh, are in the aftermath of the coronavirus. And then you look at China's a totalitarian regime, Taiwan's a democracy. And then you look at what policies did Germany um, copy? What policies did America copy? What policies did the UK and Japan copy? So they're all democracies, right? So you would say, okay, well, they must have copied Taiwan's policies. Well, Taiwan never had a lockdown. They had voluntary masks. They had voluntary um, you know, uh, quarantine. They had all, everything was voluntary. I was there in January of 2020. There was no lockdown. There's never been a lockdown. And so all those countries that are democracies, they, they didn't copy the democracy. They copied the totalitarian regime. And you say, well, why is that? How were they able to so powerfully influence our policies to be like theirs? Well, you look at the same uh, mechanisms that got LeBron James to do what he did is the same kind of mechanism that got Tedros, the head of the World Health Organization, to essentially go along with China. If you look at the recent investigation where they sent investigators back to Wuhan, I mean, they were basically prevented from doing anything in terms of finding out what's going on there. So what you, what you have is, you know, a complete change in the battlefield. You have a complete change in the way warfare is waged. And quite frankly, it's, um, it's, it's a war that uh, the Department of Defense absolutely has no idea how to fight. They, 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 can, they can fight with weapons, but they cannot fight with ideas. That's exactly uh, why we've taken on this endeavor. Um, Americans are victims and vectors at the same time. Um, so the metaphor paradigm is something that I use as an assessment tool to educate the public in how one activity by a, either a state or a state-sponsored uh, proxy does has multi-tiered effects. So for example, if you look at what, you know, the weaponization of migration, for example, Russia can bomb Syria, it releases thousands or hundreds of thousands of refugees they go into European countries, which has, you know, a deteriorating infrastructure and essentially it causes civil unrest. Well, the same thing is happening here in the United States. Um, here in the United States, I believe that, well, for one, I think since 1973, when the All-American Volunteer Force was created, Americans essentially, you know, uh, forfeited their, uh, their seat at the seat of grand strategy. And ever since then, we've kind of been in this decline where Americans are, you know, detached from what's essentially taking place. And that's the changing landscape of warfare. Um, three, it's actually your book that gave me a lot of uh, inspiration to create uh, science fiction literature to put in my nonfiction book. And one of the pieces that I write is called The Weather Report. And so, as you've said before, with 5G, um, it's, a, it's an industrial internet. But people who control that data, people who control that infrastructure, 
and we're going to be able to manipulate at any one point in time throughout the United States communities. And it's getting to the point where it's just not just the short-term outcomes, it's about the long-term outcomes. So when we look at trauma-informed practices in the mental health paradigm, essentially we grade for example, if you know a child is abused at a very early age, more than likely there's you know that number is going to increase and it's going to cause certain kinds of outcomes. Well, if you can generate an artificial trauma, then you essentially incapacitate the executive decision-making process of that child, where they're predisposed with a weak immune system, they're predisposed with anxiety, depression, all sorts of things, and all at the touch of a button. And Americans. You know, and this is something that me and Paul have been talking about. How do you get 330 million Americans who are now essentially combatants to really say or have, you know, some form of accountability, personal accountability to say, you know what, I don't think I'm going to click that ad. You know what, I don't think I'm going to post that. Or you know what, I don't think I'm going to support Amazon or, you know, the iPhone or whatever. Um, it's almost impossible to inoculate those kinds of things. So. For us, everything is about specifically targeting our community. So we have 2.7 million post 9-11 vets out there. And, and that's kind of our focus right now is, you know, finding the authoritative figures, having, using the facts, right? And turning it into uh, intranarrative identity. So we're using this platform and these facts um, combined with mental health to deliver to our, uh, our constituencies, our peers, to say, look, you don't want to be falling into these categories. You don't want to be falling for these traps because all it's going to do in the end, it's just going to, it's just going to mess you up and it's just going to jeopardize us. And that's something that, you know, is a, is a lifelong mission. Um, in your book, you say, I think, yeah, we have three years essentially to uh, stop this in terms of, uh, in terms of like the 5G, right? So the United States has till 2023 in order to get its, somewhat it's planned straight in order to deter China's efforts. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought I thought we had three years. I think in 2020, it showed me just how powerful uh, the Chinese Communist Party is in terms of its ability to influence um, our entire you know, political and social system. And, um, you know, the, 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 the problem with just, uh, and, and this is why, by the way, I asked to retire from the Air Force because I wanted to take the fight um, uh, into this space, I, I had to inform and educate. That was part of you know what I what I saw you know was the only way that we could get back at this. But there's we have limited power to do that because the platforms are controlled by Silicon Valley tech companies, which are basically um, incentivized by the Chinese Communist Party to continue to do the things that the Chinese Communist Party wants. So they're financially incentivized to be aligned with China and not aligned with the U.S. Constitution. This is our problem. Um, you know, from if you think of you know where we're at today in terms of uh, influence at the individual level, it's very much influenced by uh, consumer mobile computing. And if you look at that um, market, it was based on consumer adoption. So Steve Jobs. Uh, goal was to basically get a hand, get a get an iPhone in everybody's hands. And when he got an iPhone in everybody's hands, now he had a platform to influence. Um, you, you know, the app store didn't come until you had enough consumer adoption of, of the iPhone. And then, of course, Google got into the, into the act with Android. Um, but when you look at 
5G and you realize the fact that it's not about the smartphone, it's really about the internet of things. It's about your city, you know, being a smart city. That is, um, that platform is not a smartphone platform. It is a, it is a, it's an infrastructure platform. And so when you think about how do you change um, the, 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 where we're going and from a technology perspective, how do you change the future? You have to actually look at infrastructure. You have to look at community adoption of 5G infrastructure and realize that if we are to change the, the pattern of behavior of our society, that you have to give the people the tools and the power to do so. And that really requires um, taking data, data at the individual level, your personal data, locking it down with encryption, ensuring that you are the one that has power over that data. Now, today in the mobile devices, you know, that it's a, it's a completely open system. And so, you know, what I've been focusing on, focused on is how do we get that infrastructure to create, to get that computing platform to be built into the infrastructure and locking down data. So in a way, you know, we're, we're doing the same thing. I'm doing it from the technology space. Um, you're doing it from the informing space. And I think there's a good opportunity here to to uh, collaborate, you know, on that. You know, my my goal, you know, we I started uh, in 2018 to build a company to to, to focus on building secure 5G infrastructure, and, and you know, we're starting to actually deploy those things um, in in 21. So it's um, it's in a very important thing. Absolutely, and it, is that the uh, sky spot that you were? I think you discussed that not recently. Uh, where you're building the encrypted. Yeah, we, it's called, we're, we finally um, come up with a name for it. It's called Semper is the company and it's called Secure EMP Resistant Edge. It's really, it's the first, uh, you know, in the world EMP resistant infrastructure that also has a secure encrypted computing environment that enables uh, data to be worked on, but worked on in a way that preserves privacy and, and, uh, and security. So our goal is to work with you know, first responders work with, um, you know, rural um, network operators to deploy this technology into communities to provide, you know, technology for first responders to save lives. But at the same time, that same network and computing platform can be used to secure the Internet for communities around the country. And, and we're also working, you know, with allies and partners on this as well. Yes, the encryption portion of it is very, very powerful. Um, and I know we're running out of time here. I just want to leave on this note. Uh, not too long ago, I spoke with some folks out at MARSOC, the Marine Special Operations Command, and I was talking to them in terms of what kinds of programs do they have in terms of understanding biofeedback um, in order to assess and implement specific kinds of therapeutic tools, specifically for fire teams and squads. And you know, they, they really didn't have anything, even though they wanted to separate and create their own kind of pathway. And the problem was, and it still is today, is the fact that you have designer technologies coming out, your data is being aggregated, and if it's taken or if it's stolen, then you've compromised your entire unit. And I think that this is the way to go in terms of the futures, creating those kinds of physical infrastructures that are able to encrypt, able to withstand uh, enemy activities like EMPs, in order to have every echelon within our institutions to move forward and progress with that. And this is very, very important. And I just want to say thank you, sir, for your time. Thank you for your contribution, your patriotism, and sitting down with two ground pounders that just 
you know, just very, very thankful for you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You guys keep up with the fight. Yes, sir. Thank you.